Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, the Book of Romans, chapter one, the conclusion. I know we've spent an inordinate amount of time in chapter one of Romans, but today we'll conclude it. Now, in some ways, today's lesson might be the most emotionally and culturally challenging of the several lessons we've had on this chapter because Paul, never one to mince words, deals head-on with sin and especially with sexual perversion. And I believe that sexual perversion and sexual immorality is the single most serious and dominant issue of our time. And this is because while terrorism is certainly a danger to life and limb, sexual immorality is a danger to our souls and therefore to our eternal futures. It's an issue that's not just divided the world and and, and our nation. It's divided and deeply damaged the church. In an astounding turn, away from God, away from His commandments, some of the longest standing, most recognized Christian denominations have recently split over the issue of sexual immorality. Now I want to begin by quoting a portion of a psalm that is quite poignant and pertinent to our lesson today. It's Psalm 50, verses 16 through 23. But to the wicked, God says, What right do you have to proclaim my laws or take my covenant on your lips when you so hate to receive instruction and you fling my words behind you? When you see a thief, you join up with him. You throw your lot in with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and speak against your kinsmen. You slander your own mother's son. When you do such things, should I stay silent? Oh, you may have thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke and indict you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to save you. Whoever offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice honors me. And to him who goes the right way, I will show the salvation of God. What right, this psalm asks, does anyone have? To depend on God's covenants when we hate to receive God's instructions and instead we fling God's word behind you, it says. Let me say that in modern terms. You say you've been saved in the name of Jesus Christ. But you don't want to obey God's laws. You don't want to comply with the truth of the Bible. It is the person who does right that God says he will guide to salvation. How do we know what right is 
If we shun God's word, if we turn our backs on His Torah, where right and wrong are clearly defined in as many as 600 case examples of human activity. In a sense, what we are about to hear Paul say is a Jewish midrash, or a sermon, if you would, on this psalm. Probably, he had this passage of Scripture in mind when he penned this portion of the book of Romans. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 18 on to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1402. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 14, I'd rather 18, page 1402 in a complete Jewish Bible. What is revealed is God's anger from heaven against all the godlessness wickedness of people who in their wickedness keep suppressing the truth because what is known about God's God is plain to them since God has made it plain to them. For ever since the creation of the universe his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen because they can be understood from what he's made. <clears throat> Therefore they have no excuse because although they know who God is they do not glorify Him as God or thank Him. On the contrary, they have become futile in their thinking. Their undiscerning hearts have become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they've become fools. In fact, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images like a mortal human being or like birds or, or animals and reptiles. This is why God has given them up to the vileness of their heart's lusts, to the shameful misuse of each other's bodies. They have exchanged the truth of God for falsehood by worshiping and serving the created things rather than the Creator. Praised be He forever. Amen. This is why God has given them up to degrading passions so that their women exchange natural sexual relations for the unnatural. Likewise, the men giving up natu natural relations with the opposite sex, they burn with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with other men and receiving in their own persons the penalty appropriate to their perversion. In other words, since they have not considered God worth knowing, God's given them up to their worthless ways of thinking so that they do improper things. They are filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and vice, stuffed with jealousy, murder, quarreling, dishonesty, and ill will. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God. They are insolent, arrogant, boastful. They plan evil schemes. They disobey their parents. They're brainless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Oh, they know well enough God's righteous decree that people who do such things deserve to die, yet not only do they keep doing them, they applaud others who do the same. Let me give you Paul's bottom line to this portion of Romans chapter 1. It is that the man who rebels against God 
And he denied his, his dependence upon God and his commandments inevitably becomes subject to a process of moral degeneration. Often this moral degeneration is not something that the man realizes is happening to him. And equally as often it is because his or her degenerative condition looks to be healthy and fully in tune with a self-satisfied local society and a government that believes that it's the source of moral truth. In other words, all looks fine and well to the degenerating man because everybody else is doing the same thing and it looks about the same way. Please also notice that Paul is not speaking only to Gentiles or only to Jews. Rather, it is a general statement that replies to all humanity in general. All right? And yet, since his letter is specifically to the believers in Rome, so apparently some of them may be caught up in this moral degeneration. So, he is not picking out any particular group to rail against. This applies to everyone, especially the believing community, in light of the gospel message. And in another sense, what we see is that in verse 18, when Paul speaks of God's anger against all the godlessness, the wickedness of the people, later towards the end of this chapter, Paul defines what godlessness and wickedness look like. And that people, people have no one else to blame for their degenerative moral condition than themselves. You know, many decades ago, I think some of you will remember, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson who often used a famous line in his skits. The devil made me do it. Hey, and it was always funny. But it seems that many Christians indeed believe that their own bad behavior or their own wickedness, even the wickedness of others, is the result of Satan's activity in their lives. You know, Paul makes no such claim to that. And neither does the Bible. The devil may tempt but he does not have the power to coerce. Humans willingly do evil. And so this entire section of Romans chapter 1 places the responsibility for godlessness and wickedness not upon Satan, but directly upon the shoulders of each sinner. Now although we lightly touched on it last time, I want to repeat that from Paul's viewpoint, no one can plead that they do not know that they are rebelling against God. Because what needs to be known about God that they might do right in his eyes is revealed in God's creation. Let me say that using a different term. God's attributes are revealed in nature. Assuming we understand that nature 
is everything that is visible and tangible and that is the result of God's creative force. There has been much debate over just what Paul means by this and whether such a thought is even reasonable. I mean, after all, how can some isolated tribe in the middle of the Amazon jungle be expected to know God? But without doubt, this is not some new doctrine that Paul's come up with. Judaism in general in his day believed this same way because it was a basic tenet of the Hebrew Bible. Some refer to this principle as the principle of natural law. And I think it's an appropriate label. A good example of this is found in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 1 through 5. For the leader, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The dome of the sky speaks the work of his hands. Every day it utters speech. Every night it reveals knowledge. Without speech, without a word, without their voices being heard, their line goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So you see, God has acted in a way that only He could in order to disclose Himself. And this disclosure of His is the creation. In fact, the creation, the earth, the sky, the universe, humanity, nature, so closely resembles God's attributes that it is possible to say that the creation is like a shadow of God passing by. Are we not told in Genesis 1.27 that God made mankind in His image? Man is of God's creation, so we are an image. We are a shadow of Him. But you know, the shadow itself is not the Creator. And the shadow is merely the result of the existence and the presence of the Creator. A shadow can never generate itself. It can't exist by itself. A shadow has no life of itself. Whatever life it seems to have is actually contained in the Creator of that shadow. And because this is true, God had to breathe life from Himself into that human shadow, Adam, after he formed him. Therefore, Paul can say with confidence that all humans, all humans, have an innate understanding not only of God's existence, but of His basic attributes, because they can, they can all be seen in nature. I mean, how often I've looked into the night sky and stood awestruck at the infinite nature of it. And at the variation and extent of that black ether. And those millions of pinpoints of light. Even more often I'll, I'll, I'll pause several times during the day to 
to just gaze out my office window at the glorious blue of the water and the stunning greens of the plants and the trees and wonder how beautiful it is. And yet, can a creation ever be more beautiful and magnificent than its creator? Never. And yet, ironically, when humanity depends solely upon taking our cues from nature as concerns God, we get bad results. We're supposed to worship and glorify God. Instead, we can wind up worshiping the created things, worshiping nature instead of the Creator. I mean, essentially humans, because of our evil inclinations that began in the Garden of Eden with the fall of Adam and Eve, we're wired to reject a true knowledge of God and instead turn to gods of our own making. This is the human dilemma. There's only one cure for it. The Gospel of Christ. But then in verse 21... Verse 21 explains that it is the refusal of humans to recognize God for who He is and to worship Him as such that leads to them becoming futile in their thinking and having their hearts darkened. I mean, we need to be aware that when Paul speaks of knowing God from nature, that means that in a very limited sense. People can have an awareness of God, but never establish a personal relationship with Him just by looking at nature. Instead of seeking God and acknowledging God as God, humanity tends instead to turn to idols, items of our own creation. In Greek thought, to know God more meant to apprehend and to perceive him as he really is. It's a desire for intellectual knowledge. But in Hebrew thought, to know God more means to actively acknowledge him by worshiping and glorifying him in a personal way. Thus we are we, we see the shining evidence of Paul's Hebrew thought patterns, especially apparent in his explanation of what knowing God amounts to and how it ought to manifest itself among humans as praise and worship unto Him. So those who think that knowing God is primarily an intellectual exercise have actually become futile in their thinking even though they are so enamored with what they believe are their wise thoughts. But in fact, they're fools. The result of their foolishness is they've become self-deceived and they begin to exchange the authentic for the fake. In all their supposed wisdom, they choose to give glory to other human beings or to birds, or animals, or reptiles. And actually this is done using images, idols of humans, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. 
Now this idea of this wicked exchanging the worshipping of the true God for worshipping fakes, images of created things, is a frequent Old Testament subject. An example is Psalm 106. When the subject is the golden calf created by the Israelites during their exodus from Egypt. In Psalm 106, 19 and 20, it says, In Horeb they fashioned a, cast, a calf. They worshipped a cast metal image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. So to sum it up, Paul is saying that a human who refuses to acknowledge the God of Israel as the true God and creator does so because they choose to do so. They do it from their own wickedness. They have utterly no excuse for it because despite what they might say or do, they innately know of the true God. And now while atheism was not known until barely 300 years ago, in fact, while atheists swear up and down that they don't worship any God at all, in fact, while they celebrate themselves as the highest beings in existence, the most superior of all living things, and this belies the truth that they are simply worshiping themselves. They don't want anyone else displaying any evidence of God because it pricks their conscience when they see it. They prefer to stay safely ensconced in their make-believe, self-made world. The religion of atheism, and yes it's a religion, is of worship of self. Even more are so-called brilliant scientists who insist that the creation of the universe and life was just somehow spontaneous self-produced are in modern times the fulfillment of Paul's words about those who claim to be wise but they become fools. Now while Paul would never have imagined of people who don't believe in God's and in the spirit world because no such people existed in his day in fact that application couldn't be more spot on. But now we enter that portion of Romans chapter 1 that has been all but rejected by some denominations or pastors, a large growing number of congregation members. It's the portion that I believe is perhaps the most important, dangerous, and bedeviling of the modern era. It's the portion that deals with homosexuality and other forms of sexual perversion and it severely denounces it. But before we deal with that, verse 24 says something important and controversial. First, verse 24 explains that the reason that at some point God will turn people over to their sins is this. He does it because they have no excuse. Everything from verses 18 through 23 has set the stage for verse 24. Now second, we have to face what it means by God has given them up. What does that mean, God's given them up? Now some English versions say God's abandoned, others say God's turned them over, yet others say God's delivered them. 
these all trans, translate the Greek word paradidomi. And each one of these English translations fits pretty well with the literal meaning of this word, so there's no need to quibble. What's being said is that God abandoned people to their moral de degeneration and wickedness as a result of their intentional rejection of Him. But what does abandoned or hand over mean? I mean, does God just sort of let go? And He just allows whatever's going to happen to happen? In other words, something rather passive action? Or is He more active in the process? But when we look in the Old Testament and to, to where the same term, handed over, God abandoned them to, something like that, when we find in the Old Testament it's used that way, often it's speaking of Israel when they're in rebellion. And in those cases, it's not simply that God suddenly merely turned His back on Israel and stopped blessing them, but rather that He also gives them a nudge towards their enemies and their deserved punishment. You know, it's a little like the judge who convicts a criminal, then he hands them over to the jailer for incarceration. Now, what has God given these wicked people who reject Him over to? It says he turns them over to. What does he turn them over to? What's their earthly punishment? Huh. It is to be turned over to their morally depraved lusts of their heart. That's what we're told. Now remember, when the term heart is used in the Holy Scriptures, it's referring to the seat of intellect, to the human mind which during the entire biblical era was believed to occur in the heart organ. What Paul is expressing here is a well-understood Jewish principle from Second Temple Judaism. It is that a man must serve either his creator or serve his own evil inclination. That is, a human will always choose either to serve and obey God or to serve and obey ourself. There's no third way. There's no middle ground. Yeshua accepted and taught this same principle that both the Pharisees and the Essens agreed upon. Matthew 6.24 No one can be a slave to two masters. For he, he will either hate the first and love the second or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. The rabbis taught that either your heart controls you or you control your heart. That is, your heart either brings you under subjection or you bring your heart under subjection with the idea being that when your heart, your mind, controls you, then God cannot. Why did the rabbis say that a righteous person must bring their hearts into subjection? Because in Holy Scripture, 
God taught them in Jeremiah 17.9 the heart is more deceitful than anything else and it's mortally sick. Who can fathom it? In the Jewish Midrash called Genesis Rabbah we read this commentary about a passage in Genesis chapter 8 verse 21. In the passage, part of the passage is, and the Lord said to his heart. Well, the rabbis say the wicked stand in subjection to their hearts. In other words, meaning their passions, their lusts. Thus it says in God's word that the fool has said in his heart in Psalm 14. Esau said in his heart in Genesis 27:41. Jeroboam said in his heart in 1 Kings 12:26. Now Haman said in his heart in Esther 6:6. 6, 6. See, but the righteous have their hearts under their control. Hence, it's written. Now Hannah. She spoke at her heart, 1 Samuel 1.13, and David said to his heart, 1 Samuel 27.1, but Daniel proposed to his heart in Daniel 1.8, and the Lord said to his heart in Genesis 34.10. So we must never listen to our heart. Never let our heart control us. Rather, we must bring our hearts, our minds, under subjection. Subjection to what? To a regenerated mind that has been healed by God's word, by God's truth, God's light. The Bible warns against listening to our hearts time and time again. And yet Christians, especially love to talk about how they follow their hearts. For their hearts telling them to do something. And they think this is a really good thing. The Holy Scripture says the exact opposite. Well, the final words of verse 24 speak of the shameful misuse of each other's bodies. Obviously, this is speaking of sexual perversion. But the next few verses make it clear that the particular sexual perversion that Paul is addressing at the moment is homosexuality. Now, it's not my intention to make the bulk of this lesson about the details and evils of homosexuality. The Bible itself ought to be sufficient enough to address it. That non-believers enjoy and advocate for homosexuality and other sexually immoral outrages should not be surprising to us. They have no relationship with God. They have no moral compass, no Holy Spirit to guide them. But what about professed believers? So what I want to do, I want to address the ever-increasing bent of the Christian church to accept homosexuality as good and an acceptable alternative lifestyle. We have a number of church denominations and Jewish sects 
who now ordain gay ministers. Other denominations have decided to perform gay marriages. I don't want to just throw that out there without specifics. The conservative Jewish movement, the reform Jewish movement, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church USA, and the United Church of Christ have all made it church and synagogue law to accept homosexuality as normal and good. They all ordain gay leadership and perform same-sex marriages. The common refrain from these churches and synagogues is that either the Bible is silent, they claim, on the subject of homosexuality, or that such a prohibition no longer applies because it was only meant for ancient times. Even if the prohibition is presented in the New Testament, like here in Romans chapter 1. The other primary argument is, oh, this ought to be familiar, because God's love. God is love. Love trumps everything. So if love is involved in sexual relations in any form, including same sex, well, then it's good. And Jesus heartily approves of it, and he would condemn anyone who would speak against it as unrepentant bigots. Here's a recent statement made by one of the leaders of the Christian LGBT movement, Jimmy Creech, who is a 30-year United Methodist pastor. And while he certainly doesn't speak for all gay people who claim Christianity, he speaks for a pretty large group. Here's what he says. How do I view God's position on homosexuality? Well, I believe lesbian, gay, and bisexual people to be part of God's wondrous creation. And he created them to be just who they are and completely loved and treasured by God. I believe God does not intend for anyone to be alone but to live in companionship. And I believe God expects healthy, loving relationships to include sexual love. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, of course, but either does it deny it. Now, I believe this to be true not only because of the Bible's emphasis on the goodness of God's creation and the supreme value of love, but because of the greater understanding of human nature that we now have available to us today. I do not believe that God intends us to live in the small world of ancient biblical culture, but rather in God's larger evolving world, informed by science, reason, and experience. Now the other argument that passes for truth in our time is that this bent against homosexuality is only a modern one. And that what the Bible meant to ancient people in this Romans passage and in at least five other passages in the Old and New Testaments that are frequently used as saying this is anti-gay, that they actually have nothing to do with homosexual behavior. To that end, I'd like to quote to you a passage from a commentary on the book of Romans written by the early church father 
Severian of Gabala about 400 AD. Now this regards the specific passage of Romans 127 that reads like this. And likewise the men giving up natural relations with the opposite sex burn with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with other men and receiving in their own persons the penalty appropriate to their perversion. Severian says this. Paul did not say this lightly but because he had heard there was a homosexual community in Rome. In the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, homosexuality was not only common, it was fully accepted, even highly regarded. We get the modern term lesbian from the notorious reputations of the homosexual women of the Isle of Lesbos. So as Severian says, Paul wasn't writing to the Romans because this thought just kind of popped into his mind. As the center of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome was ground zero for sexual immorality and especially homosexuality. I mean, Rome's emperors were noted for it. Nero turned it into an art form using the bodies of young boys. So Paul was addressing a specific problem that believers in Rome were facing. And this was his protocol for all of his letters that we today call the epistles. Another early church father, Chrysostom, who lived at the same time as Severian, says this that's taken from his famous homilies on Romans. He says, this is clear proof of the ultimate degree of corruption when both sexes, sexes are abandoned. Notice how deliberate Paul measures his words. For he does not say that they're enamored with one another, but that they were consumed with lust. The normal desire for sexual intercourse united the sexes to one another, but by taking this away and turning it into something else, the devil divided the sexes from each other and forced what was one to become two in opposition to the laws of God. The devil was bent on destroying the human race, but Paul goes straight to the source of this sexual evil. Ungodliness, which comes from twisted teaching and lawlessness, which is his reward. So the point is that first of all, these comments from two early church fathers around 400 AD is proof that the claim that is only fairly recently that the church began to say that homosexuality is wrong and to suggest that the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't speak against, this is simply a lie. But second, I think that the last sentence that I read to you from Chrysostom nails it. The real source of sexual evil is ungodliness, which comes, sadly, from twisted teaching from the pulpit and from lawlessness. Now what concerns me is not only that entire denominations have given in to the LGBT movement, other denominations are teetering, or at least finding ways to be very tolerant of gays and transgenders. Pope Francis has recently issued an open apology to gays and transgenders for not inviting them into the Catholic Church. 
and more fully embracing them and their sexual choices. How could the leader of the Catholic Church declare such a thing? By twisting God's word and by being disobedient to God's laws. This is what the Bible calls lawlessness. What these passages in Romans chapter 1 tell us is that when people move far enough away from God, and I don't know exactly where that line is, He will turn them over to their sin. And He tells us that idolatry and sexual perversion go hand in glove. So in verse 28, Paul more or less repeats the previous few verses, using a little different terms to make his point. And the point that jumps out is that those who do not find God worth knowing will be given up to their worthless ways of thinking. And it is God's intention that the result's going to be this long laundry list of wrong things, of vices that we find in these final few verses of chapter 1. In a sense, the punishment is that God is ceasing the restraining, or rather the restraint of that individual from committing all manner of sexual perversion and becoming even more wicked by doing this list of vices. Now I'm going to tell you that many Bible commentators have a very difficult time with this section of Romans because they don't like what it implies. They worry this is going to sound too harsh and it's going to turn off seekers. They worry that this is going to put a chink in their armor about their thoughts. That the New Testament God, Jesus, is supposed to be strictly a God of love and mercy. This doesn't sound very compassionate or tolerant. They worry that it sounds too judgmental, too permanent. Folks, it says what it says. There is no candy coating this. Verse 32 states that all these vices listed make the sinner worthy of death. But understand, from a Jewish perspective, this not only means capital punishment, it means eternal separation from God. Because under the law of Moses, which Paul still upholds, that is what it means. The law is that if you've committed a sin that can be atoned for, that an animal sacrifice will do. But if you commit a sin that cannot be atoned for by an animal sacrifice, then there is no atonement for sin of any kind. Your eternal fate sealed, you die an unrighteous death, hell's your eternal home. Well, now that Yeshua has come and gone, Paul certainly understands that a person's sins can be forgiven by faith and trust in Yeshua. But see, that's not the point or the subject here. Now make no mistake, there is not a hint in Paul's statement that a person could live the lifestyle of any of these vices that he lists and then simultaneously legitimately claim trust in Yeshua. It's just not possible. In fact, what Paul has described is a person with a reprobate mind 
who has chosen not to know God. And as a result, God has given them over to sexual perversion as well as these other sins. So this modern day thought in some Christian circles that a person can enthusiastically live a homosexual lifestyle at the same time claiming Christianity is simply self-deception. Not very politically correct, is that? That's the truth, folks. The rest is just deception. Matthew 7, 21-23, you've heard this a hundred times. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And I will tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now verse 32 also makes a simple claim that we need to not overlook. It is that people who do all these wrong things that Paul has spoken about know that they're doing wrong. They don't have to be told that sexual perversion is wrong. Nature itself tells us that. They don't have to be told that slander, dishonesty, planning evil schemes is wrong. Knowing this is built into our DNA as humans created by a Creator God. Murderers don't murder because they don't know murder's wrong. It's not a matter of education. Thieves don't steal because they think stealing's right. Adulterers don't practice adultery because they think it's good. And homosexuals don't practice same-sex sexual relations because they believe it's God's will for them. They do these things because they want to do them. Because they listen to their hearts and want to fulfill their fleshly desires. They rationalize their wrong behavior because they have willfully exchanged truth for a lie, says Paul. Paul ends this section of Romans by saying something else that has troubled theologians to no end. He says that to applaud others who do these heinous deeds is no different than doing them yourself. So in the case of sexual perversion, if you're not gay, you're not transgender, but you applaud and cheer them on and their destructive sins, you are counted as alongside of them, according to Paul. I've read some pretty tortured attempts to make these few words out to be something else entirely, but they're just not convincing. While I must say, you know, this really is not an easy principle to understand. Why a person who only applauds and cheers others to do wrong is as guilty as the one who does the wrong. There is no way, other way to understand that this indeed is the saying of Paul. This is what he means. So as believers, it only leaves us with one option. 
we accept it. We understand that it's true, even if it's a difficult truth, especially in modern Western society. So our minds are uncomfortable with it. But you know, it's not up to us to put God's word on trial. It's up to us to learn from it, to believe it, and to obey it. Next week we'll begin Romans chapter 2.